Well, this morning, we come to the last sermon in our short Advent series where we are considering Christ the prophet. And maybe you're wondering why our Advent series has extended past Christmas this year, as most Advent observances typically culminate there at Christmas. Well, as Mike explained at the beginning of the series, Advent is a time of reflection, when we look back and when we look forward. We look back to remember that Christ came and forward in anticipation of him coming again, at which point he will make all things right. And so this morning, on the backside of Christmas, we find ourselves again in that space between Christ's first and second coming. And in that space, we'll be looking at how Christ, our prophet, now makes his appeal through us. And our text for that this morning will be 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. And while you're finding that in your Bibles, I want to pro provide some context for you in regard to where we are in this letter. Well, 2 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. It is actually his fourth letter to the church there. But as there appear to be no surviving copies of his first and third letters, 4th Corinthians has been designated as 2nd Corinthians. Well, in this letter, Paul's writing to address very specific issues and topics as they related to the gospel, the Christian life, the Corinthian church, and his own ministry and apostleship, as some false teachers were actively trying to discredit Paul to the end of their own benefit in his absence. And we pick up with Paul's comments about the ministry of reconciliation to which all believers are called to. Now, we won't be looking at everything Paul has to say about this ministry, but in just our six verses, we'll see him reference the word reconciliation in one form or another five times, which is to stress that this ministry of reconciliation is vastly important for anyone who is in Christ. And in understanding how that relates to Christ the prophet, we could summarize it from our text in this way, which will also act as our one-sentence summary this morning. So if you're taking notes, our summary is that Christ is God's prophet of reconciliation who makes his appeal through us. Christ is God's prophet of reconciliation who makes his appeal through us. He is the word from God who brings reconciliation with God, and he uses his people to make that appeal. And with that being said, let us now turn our attention to God's word and read our text. Now, I'd like to remind everyone that this is the word of our God, and that we should hear it and receive it with faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, started in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you then, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled 
to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, this is the word of our God, and thanks be to him for it. Well, the enemy was on the move. They had been preparing for this siege, this coming war that they're about to wage for quite some time. Battle plans had been made and set in place. Resources had been gathered. Weapons and armor had been forged. Soldiers had been assembled and trained. And now they were on the move. Due to arrive at the gates of the castle in Gundor within days, and in numbers that were anticipated, would be overwhelming to the people in the city there. And they were right. The people of that kingdom were no match for this enemy on their own. They needed help. They needed aid. But their allies were too far away to be reached by a rider in time. And then there was the question of whether or not their allies would even come if word made it. Well, this was the scene in the final book of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Some of you know it well, and perhaps some of you have seen the movies. Well, if you've read the book or seen the movie, you may remember that they did get word to their allies in time. And they did this by means of lighting a series of signal fires or beacons that had long been set up along the mountain ridges spanning from their kingdom to that of their ally. And if you've seen it, it is a really cool scene in the movie. As one beacon being lit signals the next beacon to be lit, and on down the line it goes, like dominoes falling, until the signal, or word, crosses part of the world to reach its recipient. And at this point, though the Lord of the Rings was our catalyst for this illustration, I want you to think less about that story and more about the concept of those who lit the beacons within the story. For each lighter of the fire was, in a sense, an ambassador of light for the kingdom. For our beacon was not lit until the lighters had first seen the light or received the word themselves from those who had put it forward before them. And that with the understanding that the word had come directly from and in the authority of the kingdom behind it. And with that insight, it should be clear that no ambassador of light would dare send out an unauthorized word from the kingdom of their own accord, or would hold a word from the kingdom that was meant to go forth. Because ambassadors serve or represent the will of their kingdom or government over that of their own. Which is what I want us to understand from this illustration, as we see that in our text, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. Now at some point, every analogy breaks down, and there are nuances specific to the Lord of the Rings, and the beacon lighters therein that do not apply to us. For example, the kingdom of God does not now, nor will it ever, need help. But God does have people currently beyond his kingdom in view who have not yet been reconciled to him and who do need help, who do need the light of the gospel or the message of reconciliation. And though God doesn't need us to be his ambassadors, he does invite us or call us into that work for the benefit of others. So that instead of God sending out a word for help through his ambassadors or his people, he rather sends out a word of help. He sends out a word of hope. And that is the imagery I want you to have in the forefront of your mind today as we walk through this text. 
that you, Christian, are an ambassador of light, a kindler of hope to the world, who Christ, God's prophet of reconciliation, is making his appeal through. And with that being said, from our text, we're going to look at four observations about his message of reconciliation. Now, these observations are intertwined all throughout our text, so there will be some overlap. And I am going to say the word reconciliation so many times today that you will not forget it for the remainder of the year. And this is January, which I am doing with intent, as I'll explain why just a little bit later. And with that being said, our first observation is that his message of reconciliation is needed. His message of reconciliation is needed. And it's not just needed by some, it's needed by all. Every person who has or will ever live. Because the reconciliation we're talking about here is not a horizontal reconciliation, meaning from us to others, though we sometimes do need that. But what we're talking about here is a vertical reconciliation, meaning it's the reconciliation we all need with God. For whether you are keenly aware of it or not, we are all sinners by both nature and choice. As Romans 3.23 would say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And to be a sinner is to be separated from God and an enmity with God. As sin is a rejection of him and his lordship. And all those who are enmity with God are also under his condemnation marked for wrath. For Romans would also say in 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Which is why we need reconciliation with God. So that like Paul says in verse 19 of our text, God will not count our trespasses against us. And this urgent need of ours is the foundation that our text is built upon. And the reason why Paul is so resolute to address this ministry of reconciliation. For every breath we take, our moment of life we are given apart from being reconciled to God is a mercy that he is extending to us. It is borrowed time that he is graciously and patiently providing for us to come to him. Which is why we are to, as Paul says in verse 20, implore you, or we could infer, implore everyone on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because no one is promised tomorrow. Now in writing this, Paul is not appealing to the Corinthians in our text to be reconciled to God. For he is writing to them as believers who have already been reconciled to God through faith. Rather, Paul is writing this to explain or to implore them as those who have been reconciled to God that this is the appeal they are to make as believers to everyone else that is not yet a believer. For outside of faith in Christ, there is no reconciliation with God. Now, perhaps you're here and thinking, well, I'm not fully convinced that everyone including myself, needs to be reconciled to God. I mean, I'm a good person. At least I try to be. I don't do bad things, at least not really bad things in comparison to others. I mean, sure, I may have cheated on my taxes, but I've never cheated on my spouse, at least not beyond my own mind. I may have cut people down with my words before, but I've never cut anyone down with a knife. At least, not beyond that, 
and my own heart. Well, just so you know, God even sees the thoughts and intentions of the heart, to which we are also accountable to him for. Or maybe you're here, and you'd admit that you've told lies before, and yet somehow you don't think, you don't think that makes you a liar before the one who all truths are measured against. Well, friend, you'll be right in that telling lies does not make you a liar. But it does prove that you are one. Because if you were not a liar, you would not tell lies. Just like if we weren't all sinners, we wouldn't all sin. Because, but the reality is we do sin because we do what we are. And we are all sinners in need of reconciliation with God. So friend here this morning, let me ask you, have you been reconciled to God? Do you know his peace and forgiveness through Christ? If not, then I would encourage you this morning to be reconciled with God. And that leads us to our second observation, which is that his message of reconciliation is transforming. His message of reconciliation is transforming. Look with me, if you would, at the start of our text in verse 16, where Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, as Paul begins with a from now on, therefore, we know that he is building upon something that he has already established. In fact, we'll see him do this three times in our text, saying in sequence, therefore, 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 building, thought on thought, until we know what this ministry of reconciliation is all about. But as he begins in verse 16, this first therefore is building on the fact that a change has taken place in the believer as a result of one being reconciled to God. And that change changes everything. Even the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the aim of what one is about, and even how one sees and understands the world. For when Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, he is speaking as someone like all of us who has been born into darkness and only knew the world by the darkness, by the flesh, or by the natural fallen inclinations of man, which are in opposition to God. And this, again, is true of everyone who has or will ever live. We are all born according to the flesh and live according to the flesh, which is to live for one's own self and according to one's own self-interest. And in that, we also see others through those same darkened lenses. Which is why in our assessment of our own sin, we tend to compare ourselves subjectively on a sliding scale to others and their sin. Rather than comparing ourselves to God and His holy and objective standard, like we see summarized in His Ten Commandments. And in this way, we see ourselves as better than we are in an effort to count ourselves as innocent. And yet, Ephesians 2.3 would say, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. None of us are innocent. 
For according to the flesh, we are all children of wrath. For by our flesh, we think and act and live to ourselves and our glory, and not to God and his glory, which is what we were created for. But when we received Christ's message of reconciliation, or the illuminating, saving light of the gospel, we are changed. We are made new. We are born again or regenerated according to the Spirit of God and not according to the flesh, so that we no longer live for ourselves, but now rightly for God. That's why Paul can go on to say in the second therefore of our text, in verse 517, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. For a change has taken place in the believer. We have not only seen the light, but now live according to the light, according to God and his spirit. And as I mentioned, that changes and affects how we see and understand the world, including those in the world, meaning we now look at and assess people according to an eternal perspective. What is their spiritual state? Have they been reconciled to God through Christ? If so, then we rejoice with them. If not, then we implore them on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, as Paul also says that he once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we're going to take some extra time here to try and understand what he means by this, as I think we'll see that it has relevance for us today as well. Now, the first thing for us to note here is that Paul does not say he once regarded Jesus according to the flesh, but Christ according to the flesh. And some of you may ask, well, what is the difference? Well, the difference is Paul is not talking about the person of Jesus, who is the Christ, but who or what he was anticipating or expecting of the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior, the coming king of Israel. For he was not looking for an eternal savior, but an earthly one. So when Paul says he once regarded Christ according to the flesh, he means that he was looking for the Christ to come according to an earthly perspective. And in his day and context, that meant that he was looking for the Christ to be a deliverer like Moses, who would liberate the Jewish people from Roman oppression, or a king like David, who would usher in and establish God's kingdom on the earth for the Jews. In other words, he was looking for the Christ to come and give him and the Jewish people their best life now. Their best life on this earth. And yet, Christ did not come according to that standard. For he came not in power, but in meekness. He came not as a roaring lion to rule, but as a humble lamb to die. Because he did not come to deliver his people from an earthly oppression, but from an eternal damnation. As he came to meet the greater need, their spiritual need, that would extend past one's days on this earth. Now I say this is relevant for us, not because I think we are looking for an earthly king, but because what Paul was really looking for the Christ to be, according to the flesh, was a functional savior. You guys ever heard this term, functional savior? 
A functional savior is someone or something that one looks to for their satisfaction or fulfillment here on this earth. And we all get caught up with these, which is why this is relevant for us this morning. For some of us, our functional savior is wealth or financial security. Could this be any of you? If you could only just get that dollar amount in the bank, or get that raise, or reach, or reach retirement, or land that high-paying job, then things will be good. And yet Christ says, what good is it if a man were to inherit the whole world and yet lose his soul? For some of you, maybe your functional savior is not wealth, but relationships. If you could only find a wife or a husband, or if only your wife or husband were different than they actually were, well, that would be fulfilling. Well, this thinking is partially why the divorce rate is so high. Because when people look to other people for their fulfillment, they are setting up that other person for failure under their idealized expectations. And then at some point, instead of continuing to work on their relationship, they abandon it in their perceived unfulfillment. And just so it's said, don't do this. Because marriage is not about your fulfillment. It's about your sanctification and your mutual well-being as God uses you to care for each other as partners in grace. And the irony about many who seek divorce is that they won't find their fulfillment in that either. Achievements, sports, sex, hobbies, health, food, a political party or candidate, people look to all of these things for their fulfillment here on this earth. And yet, they are constantly let down by every one of them. I mean, if this year has taught us nothing else, it's taught us that. Yes? Or how about this? Is your functional savior material possessions? If you could just get that house or Ford Raptor, that special electronic, clothes, shoes, or fill in the blank, then you would be set or content. And yet earthly treasures never last. They fade and wither, break and rust, or eaten by moths, or can even be lost or stolen. And though they may be good for a moment or time, they will never run the distance. Kids, some of you might have just experienced this at Christmas, yes? How many of you wanted a certain toy really, really badly for Christmas? Everybody? Okay. Well, maybe leading up to Christmas, that's, that one thing is all that you thought about. And yet, speaking from experience, within a few days after having received it, did you already find yourselves looking or thinking about your next birthday or about next Christmas? Well, it's not because you didn't like or appreciate what you were hoping for and given, but because whatever it was didn't quite fulfill you the way you thought it would, as nothing on this earth can. Because we were meant, or created rather, to only find our fulfillment in God, who transcends past this world. And so like Paul, we must no longer regard Christ, or whatever it is we're making to be our Christ as a functional Savior, to be over in front of who the true Christ really is, our Redeemer. And with that being said, we'll now move on to our third observation, which is that his message of reconciliation is commissioning. His message of reconciliation is commissioning. And this observation is really the heart of our text, and that to which Paul has been building to. For we've seen that we, we, for we've seen that we all need reconciliation, and that receiving reconciliation is transformative. But to what end with our remaining time on this earth. 
as God does not take us straight to be with him at our conversion. Well, in verses 18 and 19 of our text, we read this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then in verse 20, we see our third, therefore. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here we see that we're not just saved from something in our reconciliation, but that we're also saved to something in our reconciliation. And that is to Christ's ministry of reconciliation, as we ourselves are recipients of it. For we are living proof that reconciliation with God is possible, that the offer is legit, that the forgiveness is available, and that through faith in Christ, there is peace with God. Not through what we do, but through what Christ has done. And it is that which we proclaim. And it is that to which Christ's ministry of reconciliation, as we ourselves are recipients of it. For we are living proof, excuse me, that wasn't right. <laughs> as ambassadors of light, a kindler of hope, we are to be a kindler of hope to those who are still in the darkness of this fallen world. We proclaim to them there is help. We proclaim to them that there is hope. There is reconciliation with God through Christ. And in proclaiming his message of reconciliation, the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners, we take up the same torch as the saints who have gone before us to light the way for others. For just as we saw the light or heard the message from someone who went before us, we now likewise put it forward for others, as those who are called into this work of being Christ's ambassadors. Because what ambassador would not send an authorized message from the kingdom forward as they were commissioned to do? Not a good ambassador, that's who. To which there are many, and to which we do not want to be one of them. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is why I have purposely used the word of reconciliation so many times this morning. Because I want us to learn by rep repetition that this is the work that we are to be about. As faithful ambassadors who put Christ's message of reconciliation forward for others. Trusting that God will do the work of illumination in their hearts just as he has done in ours. And on this point, I want to take a step back and address the importance of what Paul said at the start of verse 19 and saying that all of this is from God. Because the reality is, everything that has to do with our salvation, our reconciliation with God, is of God. It is all by his plan. It is all by his hand. He has worked all things according to his will to this end for us. Have you heard the gospel and believed? Well, Christian, that's not just because God got his message to you through one of his ambassadors, but also because God opened your eyes and opened your heart to receive it. Gary touched on this a little bit last week when he talked about how it is God who reveals and God who conceals his truths. For why is it that not everyone who hears God's message of reconciliation receives it? Because it is good news. 
And why wouldn't somebody want reconciliation with God? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3, 4, and verse 6. This is in the chapter preceding our text. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then in verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the difference in those who receive it and those who don't is that according to God's mercy, he either lift the, lifts the veil or he doesn't. And for those he lifts the veil for, it is not only so that they may see, but also believe. For it is God who gives the light of the knowledge of his glory by shining belief in the heart. As sinners on their own cannot accept these realities or even understand them. Paul would say in his previous letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person, that is those who are in the flesh, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. So according to the flesh, or our fallen nature, we cannot understand the things that are spiritually discerned, that is, the things that are from God. Because it is foolishness to those who only see according to this world. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we can only see that because like Paul, God has caused that which has blinded our eyes to fall from them. So if you are here this morning and you are a believer, know that everything about that is from God and praise him for it. And be encouraged in that because despite your weaknesses in sharing the gospel, God will accomplish that which he desires to through your faithful efforts. Because it is not you who makes those truths shine in one's heart, but God, for he is the one alone that saves. And if you're here and you are not a believer, perhaps you think all of this is folly and are excusing your unbelief as to God not yet having given you faith. Well, perhaps God brought you here this morning, friend, in his timing for him to set it before you now. For today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. So open your eyes and see, believe, and be reconciled to God. And with that, we move to our fourth and final observation, which is that his message of reconciliation is from that which he alone accomplished. His message of reconciliation is from that which he alone accomplished. Now, I tried to communicate this point with one word to correlate with the other three, and yet it is more important to me that this point be clear. And so, I have left it at a longer wording, and you're welcome. Well, look at verse 21, our final verse, where we read this. Uh, I'm going to read from the NIV uh, in this version. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we are to understand from this is that Christ's message of reconciliation, his ministry of reconciliation, comes from that which he has already accomplished on the cross, 
whereby he made reconciliation possible by bleeding out as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. For without our sins being paid for, without our penalty being met, there could be no reconciliation with God. For God cannot dismiss sin as it warrants his justice. And yet knowing that, God still desired reconciliation with us. And so God made a way by sending his sinless son, so that through his sacrificial death on the cross, God's divine justice could be met and we could be forgiven. Romans 5.8 would say it like this, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Romans 5.10 would go further to say it like this, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so Jesus, the perfect word of God, came in the flesh as God's prophet of reconciliation to not only proclaim reconciliation from God, but to also accomplish it by giving his life on the cross. Now, in saying that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, Paul is not saying that Christ became sin or a sinner. For as Spurgeon says, there is no black blood in him. But what he means by this is that Christ was counted as sin on our behalf in his sacrificial death. So that by his death, our sins are counted as paid for, and through his perfect and sinless life, we can be counted as righteous before God. And thereby, he alone not only secured our reconciliation with God, but also made it possible. And so, Redeemer, in light of this ministry of reconciliation that we have benefited from and are called to, let us be about our Savior's, our Savior's work as he makes his appeal through us, his ambassadors of light. Will you please pray with me? Well, Heavenly Father and God of all mercies and grace, we thank you for your Son and for the reconciliation we have with you through him. We thank you that in your appointed timing, you sent an ambassador of light to each of us to kindle for us the hope that we need to deliver us from darkness, to declare to us your message of reconciliation. Help us to as well, Lord, shine your light into the darkness for others, wherever opportunity may present itself. Anywhere you would open a door for us too, Lord, help us to walk faithfully into that in this ministry of yours, knowing that you will accomplish your will and purposes in the lives of those who you would call to be your people. And in contemplating that, Lord, we pray for any in our midst this morning who may not yet be reconciled to you. Would you not let them leave this place this morning, O Lord, until they are yours? Shine in their hearts, O God. Give them eyes to see and hearts to believe that they might rejoice in you and be saved. In which we pray in the good name of Jesus, your prophet of reconciliation. Amen.